Uh, annihilationism is the teaching, and there are various kinds and forms of it, uh, but generally speaking, uh, annihilationism refers to the complete annihilation, extinction, obliteration of uh, the identity of uh, the lost body and soul, either immediately at death or, or, or immediately uh, subsequent to the uh, general judgment, the last judgment, the, the judgment before uh, the great white throne. And this view, uh, you can understand why this view arises. Uh, it is uh, certainly emotionally difficult to think and contemplate uh, what are the circumstances of those uh, who don't believe in the gospel, for example, and to contemplate the, uh, the um, hey, are you going to go with your mom? She's standing by the door there looking at you. Are you going to go with your mom? Um, this is my friend, and she loves my dog, and she's seen pictures of my dog tonight. So how about you sit here while I talk for a minute? Okay, yeah, great. Um, so this is, uh, th this is a view that teaches the complete um, destruction of the lost, those who don't believe in the Lord Jesus. And, and you can understand why um, emotionally difficult, how emotionally difficult this is to contemplate, say, um, say a relative uh, who, who died uh, in unbelief. What, what is the nature of their existence um, in, uh, uh, subsequent to the, the, the general uh, judgment? It's called by various names, um, extinctionism, destructionism, um, conditional uh, immortality, uh, or annihilationism, and, and the, the current word, the current sort of uh, term is annihilationism. Uh, and we are speaking here then of the dissolution and return to complete non-existence of the individual um, either after death or after the, after the judgment. Um, of course, there is a sense in which uh, atheism generally teaches a form of annihilationism. Uh, those who don't believe uh, that there is anything more, that we're just, we're just chemicals, proteins, uh, DNA, and after death, there's, there's nothing, only memory. Um, uh, there are various Christian forms of annihilationism, and... Um, uh, Soul sleep, as it's uh, sometimes uh, referred to, uh, that um, the annihilation, uh, the annihilation uh, doesn't take place until after the judgment. So in between death and the judgment, um, the soul goes to sleep. And we'll, we'll consider the implications of that. Um, bye, Emma. Um, she's a dear, dear uh, child of God, uh, and we love, her, we love her a great deal. Uh, let's talk about the history and tradition a little here. Um, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, for example, and Seventh-day Adventists, the two, are not, the two forms are not exactly the same. Uh, they, they have uh, uh, some distinctions between them. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, uh, believe that the wicked uh, will be punished in the lake of fire before ultimately being destroyed. 
Now, uh, this is difficult, so I, I don't know any other way of, of, of saying it than, than saying it, but there's something, there's something odd about... If, if the motivation for annihilationism, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true of Seventh-day Adventists, but, but if the motivation is the, the sort of emotional difficulty of thinking about eternal perdition, et- eternal conscious uh, punishment in hell, um, th- there's something odd about waking people up from soul sleep to be judged and to experience pain only for them to be subsequently annihilated again. That that soul sleep followed by a waking up, followed by a, a, a conscious judgment of some kind, followed by annihilation, is also emotionally difficult. So, um, uh, a little bit of history here. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, first century into second century, is, there are all kinds of ambiguities about his birth date and death date. Uh, Justin Martyr into the second century, Irenaeus, uh, and uh, for example, Arnobius uh, against the heathen, your interests are in jeopardy, uh, the salvation, I mean, of your souls, unless you give yourselves to seek to know the supreme God. A cruel death awaits you when uh, freed from the bonds of body, not bringing sudden annihilation, but destroying by the bitterness of its grievous and long protracted punishment. Well, I'm not clear exactly what he's saying, nor do commentators agree as to what he's saying. But there is at least the seed, or so it is thought, of um, soul sleep followed by annihilationism in the teachings of uh, Arnobius. Uh, Those who uh, uh, took a different view, uh, namely eternal conscious punishment, uh, in hell, and, and we will uh, need to talk about that in the next few weeks. Um, uh, that view uh, emerges especially in uh, Athenagoras of Athens uh, in the resurrection of the dead in the second century, uh, but vigorously in uh, folk like Tertullian and Hippolytus, Cyprian, Ambrios, Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine or Augustine, uh, who argue uh, strongly that this is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. So there's a, a, a long-standing uh, view holding to annihilationism that goes back, you know, at least to the second century, uh, almost post-apostolic times. But it was in, in the minority and, and the majority uh, here uh, uh, taught that the Bible believes uh, and teaches uh, eternal punishment. Now, coming uh, right down to our own time, to the 20th century, and uh, to the second half of the 20th century, uh, and to uh, men who uh, have certainly been alive in our time, and, and some who are still alive uh, today, uh, all of these are in the Anglican camp uh, Episcopalian camp, um, including John Wenham, uh, The Goodness of God, in, uh, published in 1974, caused a bit of a stir, uh, published by InterVarsity Press. And then Philip Edgecombe Hughes, uh, who taught at Westminster Seminary 
well, well-known scholar and reform scholar, but his book, uh, The True Image, 1989, advocated a view uh, of annihilationism. And then perhaps more, more um, certainly with more publicity and perhaps more well-known would be the view um, that was um, expressed without, without too much attempt to prove it, um, John Stott. Uh, this is in a book uh, jointly edited, uh, jointly written rather by uh, Stott and David Edwards. David Edwards was the uh, sort of leading figure in the student Christian movement uh, in SCM, uh, which was the standard liberal college university publishing arm of the mid late 20th century in, uh, in opposition to uh, sort of intervarsity press. So John Stott and David Edwards were at two poles, opposite um, poles. <clears throat> and in that book, uh, this was a kind of conversation, it was called, subtitled, A Liberal Evangelical Dialogue. Uh, and it's a very interesting, fascinating book. And, and, and please don't misunderstand me. I, I, I love John Stott. I, I owe my salvation from an earthly point of view to John Stott. It was his book, uh, Basic Christianity, that led me to the Lord in 1971. Uh, so I, 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 I dislike intensely saying anything negative about John Stott. But, but here, uh, John Stott did voice uh, his, his preference for annihilationism, and he did come under a great deal of uh, criticism by fellow evangelicals of the caliber uh, of um, Jim Packer. Uh, and you, you can go online and you can, you can Google it, uh, Jim Packer's response to John Stott, and it's a very Packer-esque response, a very full response, uh, uh, Packer taking the, the sort of standard orthodox uh, confessional point of view of eternal conscious pu- punishment. Um, uh, similarly, uh, uh, Carson, Don Carson, uh, took a view against John Stott, 22 pages of his The Gagging of God, which, which is a very important text, uh, written now almost 20 years ago, uh, but devoting 20-plus pages to a criticism uh, base, basically a criticism of Stott's view of uh, annihilationism. Um, um, I, I have a quotation here from Stott, and let me pick up a little bit of it. Um, discussing the concept of eternal punishment of the lost in hell, Stott wrote, do I hold it, however? I'd hear just... Uh, sort of expressed the view and, 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 and elaborated on that view. And then he says, do I hold it, however? Well, emotionally, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But our emotions are a fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. Uh, which, and, and we'd all agree with everything that is written uh, up to that point. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, uh, and, it, and it, not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey uh, the biblical uh, material afresh and to open our minds, not just our hearts, 
to the possibility that Scripture points in the direction of annihilation and that eternal conscious torment is a tradition which has to yield to the supreme authority of Scripture. And, and you can almost sense the tentative language uh, that starts, but then it, it, I didn't, I mean, the several pages now follow in, in which he presents the arguments that, that lead him to express the view that the Bible doesn't teach, um, necessarily teach, uh, eternal conscious punishment. And, and perhaps at best, uh, John Stott was agnostic about this. I think he was more than that, but the, that may be the, the best interpretation. And I did hear from somebody that I trust that John Stott, um, before he died, actually expressed uh, uh, his, um, I was going to use a strong word like repentance, but, but uh, what did Augustine publish at the end of his uh, retractions? Um, he did sort of retract this before he died. Now, I have no means, and, and nothing has ever appeared officially, but I did hear that from a source uh, that, that I trust. And, and, and you, must, um, you, you must judge John Stott uh, you know, by, by our own standards, but... Um, uh, Jim Packer, certainly, and I've given you, I've given you um, uh, an, um, an internet link here, uh, has launched into a full-scale, no-holes-barred, uh, Packer-esque kind of rebuttal uh, of his position. Now, uh, I'm drawing from various sources, uh, Packer, Carson, uh, somebody called Sinclair Ferguson uh, that I heard once give a lecture on annihilationism, uh, and I've, I've grouped... Uh, I've grouped the response to this uh, in four, under four categories. Uh, one is philosophical. Philosophical. Um, the argument goes like this. The argument against full conscious eternal torment is based, so annihilationists say, is based on a false... Um, unbiblical presupposition of the immortality of the soul. Uh, and that that view of the immortality of the soul is a Greek view, not a biblical view. And one hears sort of silly criticisms like that all the time. I'm not sure what they mean. It, you know, you, you, you throw something like Greek or Aristotelian at something and it kind of sticks and it sounds kind of bad. So, so there are some, there's some bad presuppositional philosophical things going on here. Um, let me flesh this out a little. Uh, in, in, more, in more rigorous terms, the accusation that annihilationists would make would be that there are Hellenistic, late 1st, 2nd century BC Greek ideas, that there are Hellenistic or um, Plato, uh, Platonism um, influencing the direction of early Christian theology. Now, that is true. That's undeniable. Uh, the influence of Hellenism, the influence of uh, Platonic uh, thought on theology in the first and second century was, was considerable. No one can deny that uh, that was the milieu in which all uh, discussions, theological and philosophical, uh, took place for sure. 
And uh, you have, um, you have uh, ideas like uh, Gregory of Nyssa, whose name would be very familiar, for example, if we were doing a course in Christology. He was a, one, of the, one of the good guys, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, defending uh, orthodoxy and so on. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, speaking of the soul as simple. Now, this is a technical philosophical term. It's somewhat of a tautology here uh, um, that, 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 that the soul is simple, that they, but the idea is complex. Um, the soul is simple, not composite, and therefore incapable of disintegration. Now, some will say that that, that very idea carries over into Calvin and into the Westminster Confession. Uh, the subordinate standards of, the, of our own denomination. Uh, when, uh, for example, it speaks of the soul as, an Im- as having an immortal subsistence. Uh, and it depends on what you mean by an immortal subsistence, and it can mean different things to different people, uh, for sure. Uh, but there would be an example where uh, someone would read uh, the Westminster Confession, throw Hellenistic... Uh, Greek uh, concepts of the soul, the body is the prison house of the soul uh, kind of thing. Uh, The soul cannot be destroyed because it is essentially simple. Uh, And and therefore, uh, that that presupposition has been been utilized in the progression of uh, Christian theology. Now, that charge is is easy to make. Uh, It's a a good first-round thing to throw at anything. I mean, just throw Arist- the word Aristotelian and it's, it's going to stick somewhere. Um, and it's done a lot uh, at, at uh, blog level and, and academic level. The charges of this nature are often made. It's the stuff of uh, doctoral uh, theses. Um, but actually, early and Reformation, early Reformation, post-Reformation theologians actually did wrestle with this very idea and whether or not they were arguing something biblically or whether they were arguing with Greek Hellenistic presuppositions in mind. Uh, For example, just read any of the Reformation theologians or post-Reformation theologians on a text like 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone has immortality. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that the soul doesn't have immortality in and of itself, which is what the Greeks were teaching, right? So so there is a disconnect between Reformation understanding of immortal. We may have immortal souls in the sense that they may exist forever, but they haven't always existed, which which makes... our use of immortal different when we're applying it to soul than when we're applying it to God. And that kind of discussion took place. It wasn't as if the, the, the Reformation theologians or post-Reformation theologians, authors of the Westminster Confession, for example, you know, were, were kind of dummies and didn't really understand that. Th- that discussion certainly did take place in the 16th and 17th century. Um, it, it is unhelpful to appeal to uh, Genesis 2 Seven, man became a living soul. Now, yeah, sometimes, sometimes um, even in our circles, we can, we can get 
off track talking about what, what does the soul mean? Man became a living soul. And we sometimes say man has a soul, which I, I think is unhelpful language. I think more biblical language would be that man is a soul. Meaning what exactly? Because the word soul, nefesh, is used not just for man as, as male and female, but for animals too. Right? That's, a, that's a kind of basic point. Right? There are Hebrew scholars here. Uh, but that's a kind of basic point. But it's amazing how often uh, Christians don't get that and therefore begin to, to say that one of the distinctions, for example, between man and animals is that one has a soul and the other does not. And, and you'd find that very difficult to prove just with Genesis 2-7 in your hands. Um, a, a much better text here would be Genesis 1, uh, 26 and, and 27 uh, in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them, that text. Um, uh, that that part, of, part of our soulishness is our imaging of God. And I think that would be a, a better track to go down than, than referencing Genesis 2.7. 2, um, 2, uh, 2, Um, and again, on that thought, um, uh, let, me, let me pick up the second part here about Christ's experience uh, from a philosophical point of view. Um, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus says on the cross, and if he, if he is our representative, he's saying, why have you forsaken me? And it's not why are you annihilating me? It, it's not that Jesus is experiencing on the cross a sense of being annihilated. It's a sense of being forsaken uh, that he's expressing on the cross. So, so I would say uh, that the doctrine of man's permanence, saved and unsaved, um, the elect and reprobate, those in heaven and those in hell. Um, the doctrine of man's permanence rests on general biblical uh, teaching, not on the philosophical premise of the immortality of the soul in a Greek sense. Well, that's the first objection uh, of annihilationists uh, to, to uh, conscious eternal uh, judgment uh, is that it's based on Greek philosophy. A second uh, argument is perspectival, um, and, and the argument would go something like this, that there is a confusion being made between what the Bible intends to be the experience of the intermediate state and what the Bible intends to be the experience of the final state. And those areas in the Bible that speak of conscious punishment after death are actually referring to the intermediate state, not the final, uh, the final state. Uh, so Luke 16, uh, Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus. Um, you know, that, that, that technically speaking is a situation where one is asking on behalf of another or, or, a, or a group of others who are still alive on earth. And therefore, what is in view in that parable 
First of all, it's a parable, and, and we need to not stretch the parable beyond its intended teaching and focus, but, if, but, but it is really speaking about the intermediate state, not the final state, which is true. And, and, and therefore, those who speak use Luke 16 as an argument for eternal punishment are actually, are actually misunderstanding the nature of that parable, because the parable is speaking of the intermediate state. Now, it is surely clear enough in the New Testament that some uh, passages describing the suffering of the lost place it and perpetuate it beyond um, the last judgment. Uh, and I would say that Romans 2, um, 5 and following, and, and Matthew 8, 11, uh, 10, 11, 12, or 11 and 12, for example, uh, would be examples of texts in the Bible that are definitely speaking not of the intermediate state, but post-final judgment condition. So Matthew 8, 11, and 12, for example, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and, and the parallel here to the idea of the, of the banquet. Um, uh, and clearly in this passage, what is in view is not the intermediate state. What's in view here is, is the final state post uh, the last uh, judgment. So the second line of argument is a perspectival argument. Annihilationists say that, that folk who say the Bible teach endless conscious punishment are actually... Those passages are referring to the intermediate state, not the final state. And I'm saying the opposite. That there are passages in the Bible that speak of conscious punishment in the final state. The third line of uh, argument from annihilationists uh, is exegetical. Uh, and the meaning of words like... Um, eternal destruction and death. And so the argument is that from annihilationists that um, the statements of Scripture have not been exegeted with sufficient care. Uh, let's pick up a few examples. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal Life, And the question here then becomes, what does the word eternal, ionios in, um, in Greek, what does this term actually mean? And the suggestion is made by annihilationists that the word ionios, the word eternal in Greek, means aeonic, meaning they will go into the condition that pertains to that eternal state, that condition being annihilation. Um, so eternal really means aeonic, that is belonging to the age to come. They will go into that condition that belongs to the age to come. It refers to quality of the thing described rather than 
its longevity. Well, if that was the case, of course, whatever you make of, of Ionios with regard to eternal punishment, if it occurs in the same text, in the same verse, you've got to, you've, you've got to apply the same meaning to Ionios to the word life. So, so eternal life simply means you will, you will go to that condition that belongs to that that condition or, or something of that nature, you know. So what? So you you what you? I can't think of the metaphor now. You borrow from one. You have to whatever that metaphor is. I can't I can't think of what it is. Um, but there's a there's a there has to be here if you if you if you dilute what eternal means with respect to punishment, you've got to dilute what eternal means with respect to eternal life, especially if if that term occurs in the same verse. Uh, so annihilationists argue that nouns which occur in conjunction with eternal do not indicate an action that is endless, but a result that is enduring. So eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9, eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12, in view, they argue, is the permanent result or, uh, or state produced by an action, not the continuation of a process. So Mark 3.29, uh, eternal sin is not sin that goes on and on, but sin that has eternal consequences. Uh, and I think that part of that uh, Part of the answer to that is that the meaning of these verses must be determined not simply semantically, but also theologically. Uh, and similar arguments are, are made uh, by annihilationists about words like death and uh, words like destruction. What is, what is death? Well, annihilationists say death is, you know, eternal death. What is death? Death, according to annihilationists, is secession. Uh, and therefore, the second death of which Scripture speaks implies um, annihilation. And, and the argument goes something like this, that the traditional view emphasizes the adjective eternal, but this is to miss the force of the noun eternal death. In view is an eternal secession of existence, not an eternal consciousness. That would be the annihilationist argument. And I think that theologically in Scripture, death is the opposite of life in communion. Whether that communion is with man or whether that communion is with God, it's not the opposite of existence per se. Um, it implies a certain kind of existence. Uh, we, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. It implies that death is not the secession of consciousness, but a separation from fellowship with God. A similar kind of argument with destruction or perishing. Um, 
Matthew 9:17 neither is new wine put into old wine skins if it is the if it is the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed what is destroyed is not the totality of of existence but the intended function uh, and similarly uh, annihilationists make similar claims about the use of the undying worm metaphors like the undying worm and the unquenchable fire. Uh, so, for example, annihilationists give a fairly distinct uh, exegesis to Mark 9, 47 and 48 and, it, and its parallels. If your eye causes you to sin, uh, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, arguing that the illustration in view here implies annihilation. Um, Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, The background here is uh, a picture from uh, Isaiah 66, 24 of flies uh, laying eggs in the festering uh, corpses that hatch into maggots and eat away the rotting flesh. And uh, traditional exegesis assumes that in view is everlasting torment. Annihilationists argue that in view is destruction. Now, if the annihilationists were correct, that that what's in view in these metaphors is destruction, um, it it would not be exegetically significant to say that the worms do not die. Nor would it be factually correct. Um, so, so when the metaphor is, I think, pushed beyond its intended limit, it doesn't vindicate the annihilationist argument. And then the fourth uh, aspect of annihilation um, argumentation is theological uh, and perhaps the most persuasive argument. Uh, the traditional view demands that our eschatology be permanently bifurcated There is an eternal um, conscious existence in heaven and an eternal conscious existence outside of heaven in hell. Uh, So so a, a, a bifurcation, not an annihilation of one and a continuation of the other. Uh, and, and that bifurcation of eternal eschatology of, 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 um, uh, uh, of the end uh, goes back, certainly goes back to Augustine uh, and and is, and it was argued in the face of um, uh, universalism uh, that had developed in the early church. But it also, I think, creates something of a problem for annihilationists and the problem was was one uh, um, that I mentioned earlier Uh, The problem that most annihilationists teach something like this, that you die, body and soul are separated, the body is buried, the soul continues to exist, but in in soul sleep, in non-consciousness, only only to be woken up again, and, and, and with a traditional view of the resurrection, to be reunited with the soul, to be, to be brought in full conscious existence then to judgment and to suffer, at least, at least 
at least temporarily, to suffer the consequences of that eternal judgment, only then to be annihilated. Um, so, so that too, it, that, that argument doesn't solve the, the sort of emotional argument that's sometimes leveled uh, against um, annihilationism. Uh, you know, the, the Bible seems here to posit a left hand and a right hand. Those are my left and those are my right. And, and those are my left is not, is not nothing. You know, when, when, when Jesus speaks of those on my left and those on my right, it's, it's not, well, there's nothing on my left. How does the Bible end? What's the last picture of Revelation 22? And there is an outside. There are the walls of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and then there's the outside. Um, there is an exo, an outside. And it has some meaning. It has some purpose. And if, if there was just annihilation, what is, the, what, is, what is outside? There's nothingness. And, and that's not the picture that I think that the Bible wants us to see in that final chapter. Now, this teaching on eternal conscious punishment in hell uh, is something that we, we need to exp- explore we need to explore it because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. We need to explore it because it'll, have, it'll impact, among other things, the urgency of evangelism, that the opportunity that we have to share the gospel with others is now, because I, I don't think the Bible teaches a post-mortem opportunity for evangelism. It is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. So, so what is the point of this teaching? Well, the point is, first of all, that it's true. It, it is reality, and we need to face that. And secondly, it also puts on us a sense of urgency to witness and to evangelize, to evangelize and, to, and to pray. Uh, I've, I've, I've expended more time uh, on that than perhaps... Some of you might think it warrants, um, only because it's a view that is kind of seeping into evangelicalism today in, and, and into um, um, popular uh, preaching and teaching that otherwise uh, we might sort of loosely label as evangelical. So we need to be, um, we need to be aware of it. Well, let's pray together. Father, this is a hard truth, and uh, we understand our brother uh, Stott and his uh, emotional response to it. It's not something we want to dwell on or think upon, and yet uh, our Lord Jesus, more than any other, spoke of it uh, and warned about the, the worm that does not die and the fire that is not quenched. What a blessing it is to know the Lord Jesus. What a blessing it is to know that our sins are forgiven. What a blessing it is to know that we will spend eternity in the arms of our loving Heavenly Father in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that following the resurrection we shall shall ever be with Him. Uh, And uh, what a 
what a glory and joy awaits us. And we pray that you would fill us with the joy of it, but also with a sense of responsibility that is ours uh, to, uh, to uh, warn uh, those uh, of, uh, who are walking in the paths of danger uh, without Christ and without, uh, and without the gospel. And uh, ignite our hearts uh, to become evangelists, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.